0: In the midst of the raging storm, the question why just thunders out. Why me, Lord? Why my child? Why my wife? Why my body? Why my job? Lord, why now? Job had the why question. In Job chapter 7, he says, God, why won't you leave me alone, even for a moment? Have I sinned? What have I done to you, O watcher of all humanity? Why have you made me your target? Nancy Guthrie, in her excellent book, Holding On to Hope, writes this, From the depths of your soul, don't you hunger to see the bigger picture? To see a purpose for your pain? My husband and I do. Today we wonder, why again? The Guthrie storm had to do with their first daughter, whom they named Hope. She looked perfectly normal and healthy when she was born, but it wasn't long before the medical staff discovered some abnormalities. In a few days, they heard from the geneticists that she had a rare disease, Zellweger syndrome, a syndrome that would enable her body to rid itself of toxins, and so she was given less than six months to live. No treatments, no treatments no cures, no survivors. And so she's writing the book about this incredibly agonizing time in her life. After taking medical precautions to ensure that she would no longer be able to have children, she's miraculously pregnant. Little Gabriel is born. He, too, has Zellweger syndrome, and he dies just one day short of six months Hence Nancy's statement, why again? And it's those kinds of hard things that we face that have us shaking our heads, I don't get it, God, what's going on? And sometimes, if we're honest, shaking our fists, God, what are you doing? So as we continue on in the storms of life, we go back to the beginning. God is the God of the storm. He's completely in control of it. He's also not just over it, but he's actually in it. He is that ever present help in a time of trouble. So that we don't have to give in to fear and we can stop fighting, put our hands down. We can be still and know that he is God. Today, we move to God's purposes in the storms. Rightly understood, we're going to understand how. James could put the word trial and Job as joy so close together in the same sentence. Consider it all joy when you go through trials of various kinds. How can he do that? Hopefully our study of Hebrews 12 this morning will help us see how those two fit together. Now, when we answer the question purpose, it's different than answering The why question. The why question, when we raise it, is a very specific question. It's very personal. It's the kind of question that comes up when, like me, your wife is going through breast cancer and you've got five young kids. It's the question that was there when so many of my friends back at college church died premature, young, Rich Dominguez, a father of nine, dies in a freak car accident, going down to Taylor University, I reach out to a son who's just going through some hard things, loses control of his car, goes across the medium, is hit by a semi, he's killed instantly in the prime of his life, and his family desperately needed him. Why? I think of my friend Jonathan Thigpen, a leader in our church, a leader in the church taken by Lou Gehrig's disease in the prime of his life. Jeff Perrine, a younger man, a great father, a great husband, a great leader in our church who dies of these non-malignant brain tumors that take his life. The why questions the question you had as a church two years ago when your beloved pastor, Brad Smith, was taken home. God, why? Why would you do that? This morning, we're reminded from Hebrews chapter 12 that God has a purpose. He's got a purpose. The purpose that we're going to understand will not answer the whys, the specifics, but it's connected in a general way that will help us tremendously. And this text tells us this in a sentence. Here it is. God's storms are meant to draw us or to drive us to Christ and to make us more Like him. That's what this message is about as we consider what's God doing in the midst of these crazy hard times. He's drawing us to his son and he's making us more like him. Now, we don't know who the writer to the book of Hebrews is, this letter, but we know this that he has a deep love for his brothers and sisters in Christ and a great concern that in the midst of their persecution and suffering, they are not just going to drift away, but they're going to fall away, and they're going to throw it away, their faith. He's very concerned about that. He doesn't want them to grow weary. He doesn't want them to give up, and he knows it's a real possibility so it's a word of encouragement to his friends and it's meant to be a word of encouragement to us whether it's blue skies and sunny and you say why do you keep talking about storms you're making me nervous I think you're going to jinx me pastor my life is great right now or where you go No, that's where that's exactly where I'm at or that's where someone so close to me they're just in the dark funnel clouds of the storm It's the word of encouragement. So open your Bibles. Hebrews chapter 12, page 852. God's storms first are meant to draw us to Christ. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the seat in front of you underneath it. Page 852. Here's what the writer says, verse three: "Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. In your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood." And so he says, like Psalm 46 said, "Last week when it ends saying, "Be still and know that I'm God." He's saying, "Be still and know my son." Consider him. And that word consider him means to think of or to compare. It means to carefully assess Jesus, but specifically to look at his sufferings. Let your pain, let your sufferings now cause you to reflect on Christ's sufferings for you. His love for you. The agony that he went through for you. I don't know if you've ever thought about it, but Christianity is the only faith that shows a God who suffers. God suffers in his Son. And so let your suffering take you to God's suffering Son. That's what happened to another one of my friends, Dr. Andrew Chung, who also died prematurely. He died a a just excruciating death battling pancreatic cancer with just incredible pain. And he wrote this email to me in the midst of it. And here's what he said about this very thing of drawing near to Christ. God visited me last Thursday night while I was in bed. I'd not been able to sleep that night and remembered getting up to use the bathroom around 3 a.m. I did not see a vision or feel the flutter of wings or hear a still small voice. But I had sweet communion with him like a father with his child. I remember words from him flooding my soul. The words did not enter my ears, but I felt like my mouth was wide open and I was eating them up. In the last few weeks that I'd been in pain, I'd asked God over and over, Why are you allowing me to suffer this pain? It's of no benefit to you or me. This is so meaningless. But that night, he came and explained to me why. He knows the pain I was going through, but he wants me to experience this pain so I can understand more fully the pain that his dear son endured. I've been a Christian for a long time, but I've never fully understood why Jesus had to endure the agony on the cross. That night, I understood why. Enduring the pain and suffering was part of the price he paid for us since pain was part of the punishment for my sin. He put everything in such clear perspective. I remember thinking, let this last forever. He ends with this. During the visit, he did not indicate to me if he was going to heal me. It did not occur to me to ask him at the time. It didn't seem to be important. You hear what happened? His pain took him to the cross where he gently knelt before the cross in a new and fresh way, understanding God's great love for him in Christ. Lewis talks about how God uses pain in his book, The Problem of Pain, Great quote. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience, but He shouts in our pain. It's His megaphone to rouse a deaf world. It's His megaphone to get our attention. And if you're new to Door Creek or investigating the claims of Christ, wondering what this is all about, here's what I can tell you that many of us here this morning would say to you. Had it not been for a storm, had it not been for that megaphone, in the midst of agonizing pain, I never would have heard his voice. I would never have known of his love, of his mercy, and his power, his grace for me. So, purpose of the storms, generally speaking, Hebrews says, to draw us to Christ, consider him who suffered for us. It goes on. Verses 5 through 11. God's storms are meant to make us like Christ. So look down at verse 5. And you have forgotten that word of encouragement that addresses you as sons. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines those he loves and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. Now, the word discipline shows up nine times here in the Greek. And it's the language that we're going to use to talk about the storms, but it's very important that we understand the full meaning of this word discipline. The word discipline comes from the same root that we get the word child. And it has to do with anything and everything that a parent or a teacher would use to help that child grow up to maturity. So it deals with correction, but it deals with training and cultivating and educating a child that they might reach adulthood and complete maturity. Now, that's not what I usually think of when I hear the word. Here's my word association. Discipline, wooden cooking spoon. Huh? Anybody been there? Oh, man, here's how it was in my house. Got in trouble. And my mom would say, go to your room. Well, that wasn't what freaked me out. What freaked me out was her frantically searching through the utensil drawer for the big, fat, wooden cooking spoon. I can still hear it, and it sends chills down my spine. I knew I'm going to get it. And so I'd run to my room, and I'm looking for small books that fit down my pants. (laughs) Because I don't want to get hit by the spoon. That's what I think of when I think of discipline. And that's exactly what Satan wants you to think about when you go through the storm. I'm getting nailed. It's just how it is. And in John chapter 9, the disciples see the blind man. What do they say? Hey, Lord, who sinned? Who messed up here? This guy's blind. Something bad happened. Somebody did something wrong. Was it him? Was it his parents? Jesus said, neither. It's so that you might see the works of God, his power, his compassion at work in this man's life. He didn't do anything wrong. And it's so easy in the storm to say, I'm being punished. Christ took your punishment. Endure hardship as, this is a simile, as discipline. It's like it. It's not punishment. It's God's training to make you more like his son. The context is clear. It's a loving relationship. You have that word discipline nine times, but also in this, we have nine references to either son, father, or children. Look at verse 7, endure hardship as discipline, God's treating you as sons, for what son is not disciplined by his father? If you're not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not true sons. The fact is, he's doing it because he loves us. The opposite of love is not hatred, it's indifference. And God is not indifferent to us so that he would even allow and bring these storms in our life to help us and to train us grow to be more like his son. Now there's a twofold warning. You see it back in verse 5. And you have forgotten the word of encouragement that addresses you as sons. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline. Warning number one. Wording number two, and do not lose heart. Do not make light of it, is this. Don't treat it lightly. That was Andrew's temptation. It's so meaningless. It means to consider it of no value. In our language, God, this is a waste. This is a complete waste. Nothing good is happening here. I don't think you know what you're doing. Don't treat it lightly. That's the temptation in the storm. to Say, God, this is a waste. You don't know what you're doing. I'm out. And that's the second temptation. Don't lose heart in the storm. Here are the ideas, giving up from exhaustion. You've had it. You can take it no longer. You remember the verse? That's how our service opened up, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. There's no temptation that's come over you, Mark, that, that's not that which other people are going through. And with each temptation, I'll make sure it's not greater than you can go through, and I'll make sure there's a way out so you can stay under it. And you say, God, I I think you've lost track of my storm, and I think you don't realize my strengths. This thing is bigger than me, and it's taken me down, and I'm out. I don't want to have any part of it. And you throw in the towel. In that year... And so often is the case in storms, it's not just one. So Lori's diagnosed in December, has her first surgery right before Christmas, has her mastectomy right in the beginning of January. On that same day, my dad has a quintuple bypass. Two weeks later, my dad almost bled to death. Five months later, my mom drops dead of a heart attack. It's now the fall of that year. It's just a Wednesday night at church, and I'm up there with Luke and a bunch of dads and their sons. We're having a great time. And all of a sudden, in this game of sharks and minnows, Luke's running across the gym floor, a concrete floor covered with a thin layer of carpet. And he steps on his shoelace, never gets his hands out, and he smacks his head on the floor. I didn't know whose kid it was until I ran up, and I see the little redheaded guy. And oh, that's Luke. And by the time I got there, he was seizing, he was having a seizure. I, all I could do is give my cell phone and say, call 9-1-1. And I'm saying to God, I can't take another thing. Don't do this to me. Well, praise God, he was fine. But I'm telling you, I was so close to saying, I'm out. I can't take another thing. I remember a young man at the end of a service speaking on these very things. And he came up to me at the back and he said, I'm this close. I'm this close to going under. Can we talk? These are the real, real temptations in the midst of it. And if we don't know his purposes, that's exactly the path we're going to take. But when we know his purposes to draw us and to make us like Christ. And the making of uh, making us into Christ's likeness is seen right here in verse 10. So look at it. Our fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best. Hey, kids, we're doing what we think is best. We're not perfect. God is perfect. He disciplines us for our good. And here's the purpose. Look at it. That we may share... In His holiness, there it is. That's the second thing that God wants to do in the storms—not to, to draw us to Christ, but that we would share in God's holiness. What is God's holiness looks look like? It looks like Christ. That He would form Christ's character, His image in our life, and we know it's important because verse fourteen in the same passage tells us this: Without holiness, we won't see the Lord. We'll never get there. And so you see how it works? The tests, they refine us. It's not about punishment. It's about polishment. And the test is like the chisel in the hand of the sculptor. And God uses the storm. He uses the trial. And he chips away that every, everything in my life that isn't Christ. So that Christ begins to appear in me. Sometimes they're little chips like the things we see flying. Sometimes he knocks off big blocks in one whack. His polishment, not his punishment. And if we're going to share in God's holiness and reap this harvest of righteousness and peace, not a stalk, but a whole harvest of it, then here's what the text tells us in terms of instruction go back to verse 7 it first tells us to endure hardship that is we embrace the trial and the word endure here means to remain under it there's a weight in the storm it presses down upon us and our natural reaction is ugh, ugh, get that thing off of me things gonna kill me that's our reaction he says, stay under it, embrace it. Mel Gibson had it right as he depicts Christ going from Jerusalem to Golgotha, embracing the cross so that the thief even mocks him. The dialogue and the picture is not exactly in the word of God, but his attitude of embracing the, Christ is, uh, the cross is clearly there in the gospels. Embrace the trial. Not only do we embrace the trial, but we embrace his rule Verse 9 says, we are to submit to the Father of our spirits. What does submit mean? If endure means to remain under it, submit means to place yourself under someone's authority. Embrace his rule, his authority. And what you're just saying is, God, you're God. It's what Job did. Naked I came, naked I'm going. Everything I have is from you. You have the right to give it, to take it away. Though you slay me, yet will I praise you. I submit my life to you. Your God. And in verses 10 and 11, we understand that we're to embrace His perspective. And His perspective is this. It's for our good. God's discipline, His training is for our good. So let me list the good things according to God's word that happen when we go through the storms. First thing, We're able to comfort those in affliction with the comfort we receive from God. That's our text in two weeks, 2 Corinthians 1. That is, when you have a trial and God meets you in it and comforts you, you now have this reservoir of comfort and experience of God's comfort that allows you to channel it to others going through the storm in the midst of your trials and many years after it. That's a good thing. What's the second thing? It makes us more dependent upon God and less on ourselves. That's a good thing. We said last week, storms wipe us out. They bring us to the point where we go, I don't have the resources necessary to go through it. And that's a good thing to realize. We need God. Third, the faith of others is strengthened when someone's persevering through difficulty. You come here... And your friends know that you're going through it. And you may be worshiping through a veil of tears this morning. And the very fact that you're here loving God, asking for his help, blessing his name as we sing, that is huge as those who know you watch you. And maybe they're going through it. And they're strengthened as they watch you. Fourth, it tests the genuineness of our faith and leads to praise. First Peter one seven. It tests the metal of our faith. Do we really believe what we believe? Well, the storms it just reveals it. What is the stuff of my faith made of? Fifth, finally, it makes us hungrier for heaven and weans us from this world. One of the great things is the perspective one gets when you're confronted. With eternal things In the storms of life I have never heard anybody say to me In 25 years of pastoral ministry Hey pastor don't worry about it Yeah it's bad what we're going through Man I got a great big house I got two beamers in the garage We're okay I've never heard anybody Find any comfort in the things Of this world and So it weans us from these things It gives us an eternal perspective It makes us hungrier for eternity Well, if that's the proper perspective, the proper attitude is seen in verse 11. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who've been trained by it. In other words, the harvest only comes to those who accept God's training as they endure the the storm, stay under the weight of it. And so the proper attitude is, God, I want to be trained by this. Now, the, the nuance that we need to be careful of is this. This is what I hear all the time as a pastor. Yeah, pastor, can you help me know what God's trying to teach me here? Because I want to learn it really quick and get on with it. Because this thing's killing me, okay? Be careful here. Yeah, there's stuff to learn, but there's so much more going on here as we're drawn to Christ and his character is being formed in us, okay? And, and the attitude is, God... I'm embracing this trial because I want to be trained. I want to love Christ more. I want to be more like him. And finally, the proper expectations. What should we expect from the storms? Well, first thing is, they won't last forever. That's good news. It's just for a time. It's certainly only for this life. And there are some unusual storms that people will deal with throughout their life but remember most storms aren't like that and all storms don't move in to eternity this is the time of storms heaven is like San Diego sunny and 72 all the time second expect the storms to come and expect them to hurt to be painful don't be surprised Don't be surprised. You're saying, I've walked with Jesus for a long time. I've never been through a storm. You will. You will. And it's going to be hard. Expect that. Finally, expect the storms to be good, to produce good things in you, to make you more like Christ, to draw you to him. Well, Jackie Bremer is... She's a storm survivor. No stranger to storms, and uh, I wanted you to hear from one of our own. We've just heard from God's word. I want you to hear about what God has done through the storms Jackie's gone through in her life. So, Jackie, thanks for coming and sharing.
1: First, I want to thank you all who supported me in prayer through this last year. And a very special thank you to Marcia and Charlotte Miller. They are not just prayer warriors, they are my prayer Valkyries. And it's because of the prayer and support and friendship of this community, this Door Creek family, that I can look back at this last year and do as the Psalms say, remember God's faithfulness and then praise God for the storm. And together, we can look back at the time after losing Brad and remember how God worked in and through us and then praise him for the storm. And further back, those of you who loved me through my head injury and remember God's healing hand, and we can praise him for the storm. So mine is not just a cancer storm. That's just the most recent. If I were a pessimist, I would say that life is just one storm after another, But since I try to be an optimist, I pull out my surfboard, avoid the breakers that say, why, 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 and ride the wave of the storm to the shore, because there will be a shore, and realize that each storm equips me for the next and allows me to do something to glorify God and then praise him for the storm. Cancer can do wonders for marriage and family. I've never felt closer and realized how precious is my family as we together lost control of our lives and then together found strength and stability in Jesus. When Tim and I told Emily, our last child at home, what we would be dealing with, her first words were, haven't we been through enough? She was still grieving over the loss of Brad, whom she called her second father, and now this. But through this past year, she has come to realize what many people never do, That it's not how much stuff you have to go through, but what you do with it that counts. I've seen her blossom into a strong woman of God who loves and trusts her Lord, so I praise him for the storm. The second thing out of her mouth was, I don't want you to die. And I smiled when she said that because I realized that I was scared and I didn't want me to die either. And that was the moment I first praised him for that storm as I saw how far God had brought me. There was a time during all the head injury stuff that I wanted to die. I even contemplated ways that I might make that happen. So in an odd way, I praised him for this storm that scared me to death. So why should I praise God in a storm? Hebrews 13.8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. When I'm in a storm, it is my situation that has changed. God never changes, and so is always deserving of my worship. I can say to God, you are who you are, no matter where I am, and praise him in the storm. People would say to me, it's amazing how you continue to lead worship through your cancer treatment. But don't be amazed. I was being selfish. Psalm 121 says, I lift my eyes up to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. So what happens when I lift my eyes up? I take my eyes off of me. Worship with you all was a bubble of time that I could actually forget about the storm. I remember one day during my chemo treatment, I was driving to work and feeling really crummy physically, but all of a sudden I got this wash of what can only be described as joy pour over me. And I thought to myself, what the heck do I have to be so joyful about? So I examined it. And just as we find joy in learning more about, identifying with, finding things in common, and drawing closer to the ones we love, I was finding that with Jesus. I was finding joy because I was drawing closer to him because of this storm. And so I could praise him for the storm. And then there's the matter of perspective. No matter how terrible my storm experiences might have been, there were always people out there who could trump them. I became more aware of other people's sufferings and realized that we all have this in common. But Hebrew 12 tells us that in our struggles, we have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood, to the point of death. Not one of us on this celestial ball will ever experience the depth and breadth of suffering that Christ did on the cross, when he laid aside his crown for my soul, so I can praise him for my storms. Now, I haven't said this to too many people because I don't expect to be believed. It sounds a little too pat, a little too churchy, a little too weird, but maybe, after what I've shared, it might be a bit more believable. If I time-traveled back to B.C. before cancer, knowing what I know now, and was given the choice of cancer or no cancer, I would choose cancer for how it has grown my marriage, my family, my friends, my church, but most important, my relationship with my Lord. So really, what else would you expect your worship director to say but praise him in the storm?